what is uh, tradition and how do we decide when a tradition has reached its expiry date? I asked that question in light of an interview just given by Sakir Starmer, the leader of Britain's Labour Party, who threw in his interview what amounted to a metaphorical hand grenade in the direction of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. They just completed, I think, but what by any standards can be considered a fairly controversial royal tour of the Caribbean. Parts of it really got the, the dander up of those who do mean the monarchy harm, but not all uh, people who mean the monarchy harm. Some people who thoughtfully feel the monarchy has a future. That may include Sakir Starmer. Nonetheless, he has wondered out loud in the last 24 hours whether it was wise for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge to be pictured at events where, for instance, they were standing up in the back of an open-top Land Rover driving past large groups of local black people. It was an anachronism, he seemed to be saying. What then for the traditions of the royal family? Can they be modernised? I asked that question in light of my uh, next guest, Tim Stanley, whose book on tradition is well worth a read. One of my books of uh, the last 12 months, that's for sure. Tim Stanley joins me now. Tim, welcome to you. Hello tradition in the context of the royal family, the royal walkabout, standing up in an open-top Land Rover. Um, it, it smacks, say, some of pith helmets and colonialism. It's got no place in a modern royal tours itinerary. What say you? Sakir might be right. The thing about uh, traditions is they have to start somewhere, and many of them are innovations. And over time, they become pickled, and they start to become uh, just what that institution does. But if you go back to the beginning, you, you might realize that, that that origin is very contextual and the context has changed. And therefore, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask if, if perhaps things have moved on. And I did think when I saw some of those images, I did think that's imperial. Uh, now, that doesn't personally offend me, uh, but it may well offend former imperial subjects who are trying to throw off the monarchy. That said, I feel the whole story has been slightly blown out of proportion. Uh, those protests, I'm sure, were small in number. Yeah. I'm sure they did not speak for everyone. And I'm sure some people rather like being part of the Commonwealth and enjoy having, the head of, uh, having as their head of state uh, a monarch. I say this uh, as a Catholic. Um, uh, most individuals have uh, many different loyalties going on at once, a sort of a tapestry of loyalties. Loyalty to your family, to your wife, loyalty to your country, loyalty to your God. These different sort of sovereignties interact. Um, and to me as a Catholic, well, the head of my church is the Pope, uh, an Argentinian living in Italy. So it, it doesn't unnerve me at all to think of the head of my state being a foreigner who lives many miles away. Now, I understand, as I said, the historical context might well be one of slavery and imperialism, and therefore I understand why people might wish to revisit it and may want their independence. And crucially, the royals who have been reduced to the status of going around the world telling people they're happy to be kicked out. It's a little bit sad. Um, but the royals have said that. They've said we are. this is a sort of elective monarchy. The nature of the monarchy has changed so dramatically that we are no longer saying we are here because we either have a divine right or because by the grace of empire we're in charge of you. They're saying we're here so long as you want us to be here. And it may be that people will change their mind. But as I say, as someone who themselves has a global identity as a Catholic, <laughs> Uh, I would have no problem with the, uh, with the thought of someone being the head of the state who came from a different country. People weren't lobbing locks at the, at the Land Rover. It's important, you're right, to set this in context. Mm. It was a small vociferous group who were objecting to it. And the and British then, media was very uh, keen to speak to that small I have, Well, group. sections of the British media. Yes, yes, we, not every bit we of can British do, we media. We can do it as a, former royal, <laughs> as a former royal correspondent. There is a sort of complicity on royal tours to some degree. The bits of it yes. are absurd and anachronistic, but you go along with the fiction. Yes. And what I noticed on this trip were that two or three correspondents 
correspondents, and one in particular who wasn't a regular royal correspondent, decided to throw a rock in the middle of that pool right. and hang the consequences. But that's a bit of media navel-gazing. Yeah. I think he would say there was a story that needed telling, and he told it, and that's fair enough. Fair enough, but the media do like the word controversial. They and, and they use it sometimes when the control. Well, I'll tell you what, Tim, for me, I, I, it was no coincidence, and I, I don't include myself in this group, but I, it was no coincidence that when I was a royal correspondent, some of the best tabloid hacks from the Sun, the Mirror, all the, the tabloids were put on the royal beat because it was a bit like being told, at, requested by your English teacher to write the essay about the inside of a tennis ball. It, <laughs> it was short on facts and you had yes. to deliver. Yeah. And actually your editor was sending you on very expensive royal tours. You better deliver. So actually, yeah. it, 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 there is some craftsmanship to it. Yeah. But just on the point about, uh, I'm going to labour the point about the standing up in the, in the, the Land Rover. Uh, and you mentioned the Pope. And I, and I think of, you know, George Bergoglio uh, as Pope Francis uh, and I saw his predecessor in the Pope Mobile. It's mm. a similar vehicle, very similar vehicle. And you can see, as with the Royal Land Rover, it was it was a pre-social media device for exhibiting an individual to the largest number yes. of people in the most efficient way. Now, you can argue in a world of social media that loses its, its merit, but I, I don't think it does. I think what's different is the numbers. When you've got very large crowds drawn to a figure that they are devoted to, the Pope, that is different yeah. from a few hundreds of schoolchildren who've been told they're going to have half a day off to go and see this couple who may be related to a woman called the Queen who maybe you've seen on the stamps. Yes. It's a different context. Yeah. yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And therefore, it might not be that the royal tour changes. It might be that the way that it's done changes. But again, not to labour this point about the media choosing to find something controversial, there have been countless tours to Australia and to Africa where the royals went, where it could be controversial, and the media chose to focus, particularly in the case of Harry and Meghan, instead upon their star power and the young generation. It depends on how, how you wish to cover it and who you want to talk to. Claire Foge of The Times, columnist, who's, not a, who's a monarchist, uh, wrote this week that this royal tour is a punctuation mark in the royal story, actually and that some serious reforms will be needed to be uh, entered into by King Charles III, mm. uh, including the dissolution uh, of the Commonwealth, it, or at least the removal of our, the, the, the UK monarch from its, yes. its, its head. Yes. Um, disposal of royal palaces uh, and titles to go, and just the whole slimmed down approach. but the, And even the weekly audience with the Prime Minister, she felt, had had its day. Mm -hmm. And I was left looking at these proposals from a monarchist, and you're left thinking, strip away all those traditions, mm. and what's left? Mm. What kind of royal family is left? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a royal family which is trying to make sense of its role in a world in which its constitutional uh, position has, has dramatically altered. But it's done it before. It's adjusted before. I mean, even those meeting, weekly meetings with the prime minister, again, it will have been an innovation and it's done in order to guarantee the monarch a role in the constitutional life of the nation. That might alter. The risk is when you reform a tradition to the point where it's so stripped back that you, you, you just keep pushing it till you get to the moment where someone says, so why do we bother at all? That, that's the worry. And indeed, it, it is the greatest anachronism in British society. We are now a fully fledged democracy and a meritocracy and a multicultural uh, meritocratic democracy. And the fact that the, uh, a family can inherit the position of the head of state is now utterly anachronistic. Now, I think there are values in that uh, that stem both from utility, because it, 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 there's one bit of our constitution which is not competed over in elections. But I also personally uh, attach an almost spiritual value uh, to the royal family. Um, and in that sense, I'm a true monarchist. But I understand why anyone else would, look, would step, step back and say, why do we keep doing this? And in the case of the Commonwealth, the royals understand that. The, royal, the family is braced for perhaps Charles will inherit the position. 
uh, though it won't be an inheritance. It'll be a, a sort of um, he will arise for, from the Commonwealth. But whoever comes after him, I, I, it makes no sense that what is presented to us as a union of free nations should automatically be headed uh, by an English monarch. That doesn't make any sense. Well, he said he said he will be the next head of the, of the Commonwealth. So yeah. <clears throat> we'll see how that goes. I, I don't want to just focus exclusively on the royal family, obviously, but just on the point you make, <clears throat> and it's a point I make to people about the multicultural element. Yes, I mean, we live in a meritocracy. Mm. How well does that sit with this, uh, the divine right and inher inherited throne, etc.? Yes. But I think if you, uh, the imagery helps, doesn't it? Pitch forward 20 years. It's Buckingham Palace, the, the Red Arrows or whatever incarnation of jet they're flying 20 years hence is doing the flyover over Buckingham Palace, pan the camera down to the balcony and 10 white people stare back at the crowds. Yes. Like it or not, yeah. They are in the trenches of the culture war because yeah. of that image and how it fits within a country that doesn't look like that anymore. Possibly, but there is probably no institution which engages with multiculturalism more often or more enthusiastically than the royal family. Uh, why are we a multicultural society? It's a legacy of empire. No one wants to admit this. Uh, the left is in a strange position on this, in that they hate empire. They love multiculturalism. We wouldn't be multicultural without the empire. The right is also in a perverse position because the right very often hates multiculturalism, but it's a legacy of <laughs> their great experiment of empire. So we are as we are because of our history. And because the royal family has inherited that legacy, sometimes there might be a, a tone-deaf uh, interaction, such as the standing in the back of the jeep, but actually the very fact that they are touring Caribbean islands the very fact that the royal family is that direct, um, that direct bodily human link between this nation and others, uh, it, to me, shows that they are critical to uh, peace and stability in a multicultural society. And it's interesting the way that certain pieties take, take root, become traditional to, to labour this theme. I mean, it's, it's an accepted verity now that it, uh, the, the Windrush generation, 1950s, uh, black men disembarking from ships at Southampton, we're doing that to rebuild Britain. Yes. Uh, as, almost as if it was an act of volunteerism and charity. No, no. <laughs> they, were in, they were enticed yeah. to, to England by great wages, much better than they could possibly earn in the Caribbean and the prospect yeah. of a new life. So, yes, they were coming to help to rebuild Britain, but no more than, than your Polish plumber does. Oh, I don't know if I agree. Although the Poles, of course, we fought side by side. But many of those uh, Windrush era migrants um, really valued this country. No, but thought it was a promised land. Uh, we're quite surprised by how dark and grey and unpleasant it was and by the and how appalling reception. But also they had earned decolonization and they had earned mass migration uh, by serving in the war. Um, and that, that was the attitude that many of them that had, that really their relationship with empire had been dramatically changed because they had been the ones fighting for it and fighting for this country. So that relationship is very different. But I can't really think, I mean, Prince... Uh, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh made many slips uh, on race. I'm not don't get me wrong. But as for the Queen, I can't think of a single time in which she put her foot wrong in this multicultural context. On the contrary, she was behind the scenes one of the greatest advocates against apartheid. By contrast, think of our elected politicians. How many times is Boris Johnson accused of being racist? How many times has Jeremy Corbyn accused of being anti-Semitic? So the democratic politicians who are always singing the, uh, a hymn to multiculturalism actually are constantly offending against it. But the Queen, who supposedly is a figure of racist imperialism, is a fantastic ambassador uh, for uh, multiculturalism. I promise that would be my final question on, on, on royalty, but it's not. I've got this one final one. And it's, and it's the point about when the Queen goes. Hmm. 
And we, through history, you know better than many that there are good princes and bad princes and good monarchs and bad monarchs. But if you accept the principle of monarchy, then you accept that's the, the warp and weft of what happens. Yes. And there are ups and downs. Do the, does monarchy need to sell itself to, to a, a, a coming generation by dint of its its constitutional advantages. Look, guys, as you say, that the, there is no looking to uh, short-term expediency because you're not looking at the poll ratings because mm. it's a gig forever. Um, it's not the the, the, the the apex of some social structure. It's actually a nationalised family that belongs to everybody. And across that tableau that they provide are played out the ups and downs of all family lives. Mm. Siblings fall out, marriages dissolve, people die people get married and we project and we learn lessons about the human condition. I'm sorry if this sounds excessively pretentious, but it seems to me this is the message they've got to get, a, get, a, get, a, got to get across rather than look at the pith hat. Isn't Kate wearing a nice frock today? Yes, I, I entirely agree. I mean, first of all, the moment monarchy tries to justify itself, it's doomed because it shouldn't have to. And if it does, it's essentially engaging in a democratic experiment. It's putting itself out to vote. And that's against the entire principle of monarchy, rather like your father or mother trying to explain to you why they should be your father or mother. No, they just are. And authority is somewhat lost if they, if they have to persuade their children to obey them. Um, second, I, I agree with you entirely that uh, even when monarchy has wrongens in it, 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 it performs a role, which is that the bad monarch or the bad duke or prince reminds us of what a good one should look like. Uh, so they become a soap opera, yes, but soap operas are actually very instructive. We watch soap operas to remind ourselves of how we should behave. And therefore, that role is, is critical. Having said all of that, it might just be that we've reached a point in the 21st century where because we no longer teach our kids why we do the things we do, do people, do kids, do our kids understand why we have a Church of England? Do our kids understand why we have a monarchy? It might be that there, it is necessary to have a grand learning process, a big conversation, because unless we do, it could be that we forget why these things are here. And one day we get a government that just does a sort of, goes, goes line by line through every eccentricity in our constitution and says, why do we bother with any of this stuff? And it could just all go in an instant. Or, to, or just ignore them. I mean, if we live in a world where actually the man who may be our next prime minister can't define what a woman is. Right. Right. Well, you, the, the Constitution doesn't really matter, actually. I mean, I, I think I, he can. He doesn't want to. That's the distinction. I yeah, think. no, I agree. I, I recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, was having a Sunday, a traditional, a traditional Sunday roast uh, with the kids. And um, uh, it's funny. I mean, we can talk about sort of family traditions. I lost my wife uh, four years ago. And, and I th I've thought very hard about the traditions that then glue you know, my, my six kids, 10 years between them, eldest, eldest now 23, was, was, was still at university when her mum died. You know, what are the traditions that are going to hold this family together? And actually, you know, Christmas mattered. Mm -hmm. Family holidays mattered. Um, the sitting down around a table on a Sunday or a Saturday morning for, for a brunch, these things, these punctuation marks in the day in your weekly calendar really, really mattered. Anyway, I, yes. I, I digress. You're welcome to talk about that. But the point I'm trying to make is that I was having a conversation two weeks ago with a couple of my daughters and, and they were describing the sort of uh, the gender landscape at school. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was unrecognizable to anybody of my generation. I just yesterday turned 54. And, and I thought, my goodness, this is revolution. This is year zero stuff. Mm. Isn't it? Is it? Was it not happening in the 70s? No. Not to, not to this degree. I just don't right. think it was. Right. To this degree, where every single 
you know, whether what it is to be a man, what it is to be a teenager. Uh, no, that was in the 60s and 70s, I read, that was peop- a, a predominantly uh, entitled middle class cohort right, who right, were playing and letting it all hang yeah. out and, yes. and doing the, six, the 68ers in Paris and the 68ers here and in Washington and in California. They, they, they were, it was a small number mm-hmm. of, exper- of experimenteers. That's not what's happening now. Okay. Okay. You might be right. I, I don't have kids. I don't know. I just don't know. And to me, to me right now, it seems like a very elite conversation, but that's because I live in the home counties and uh, I'm surrounded by people of a certain age. So I don't, I don't hear what's going on with the young. I don't know yeah. what's taking place. I think it is. I think it, I think it really is. Right. And, and my point is, I, I just... Uh, well, well, I think that I, th- I, I would worry about that because uh, I, I, do ha- I, I can just about remember being an adolescent. Um, and actually, you do need rules. Uh, you, you do need clarity. And as an adolescent, you're always looking to people, to, particularly older people, to tell you what should what, what is it like growing up? What mm. should I expect? And what's coming down the road? And my generation has um, lost that confidence. Right. Because we, we like mm. to, we're, we're postmodern and we think, right. well, I'll just come off as some middle-aged old fart. The world's going to, <laughs> the world's going to hell in a handcart. Right. And we don't trust our ability to be figures, to be patriarchal figures of right. authority. But if you're telling adolescents uh, you can be anything, quite literally, as in y- your physical properties can be changed if, if you so desire, uh, I know that as an adolescent I would have hated that because um, that, that only adds to the, the typical teenage insecurity about their body. Yeah, yeah I think that's probably true. Um, as, as, as somebody who's made history his, his subject, um, how do you feel about the way history is currently taught in school? And... How do you feel, I mean, what, uh, as a father who's trying to instruct children and steer them away from certain errors, mm-hmm. what, what should I be making them read? Oh, gosh. Um, um, I, I, as widely uh, and as broadly as possible. I mean, uh, there, there have been some fantastic books in just the last year alone. Uh, Tom Holland's fantastic book of Dominion about Christianity. I read it. It's wonderful. Uh, th- but they a, wouldn't read it. Right. There's a very good <laughs> new book out by Dan Jones, The History of the Middle Ages, which is a fantastic, easy page turner. Um, as widely and as broadly as possible. Uh, I don't think that uh, historical teaching should be about trying to instruct people uh, about their country or what they should think or what they should believe. I think it should be about teaching them how to critically assess the past, but also to enjoy and engage with the past, uh, because the past is both familiar and exotic, and that's one of its appeals. To me, it's almost sci-fi. It's like visiting alien worlds. And the more exotic and bizarre that it is, actually, the more enjoyable it is. So in these debates, I sometimes slightly recall, recoil from the, uh, the typical conservative view that, well, we need to teach people the origins of democracy. We need to use history as a moral play. I understand why you want to do that, though I would argue the classics are probably a better place to start. We should definitely teach those because that's where they explicitly discuss ethics and morality and get, get kids learning Aristotle and Plato. But in terms of history, I'd like a curriculum uh, which is, is as wide ranging and as uh, exciting and bizarre and exotic as possible. And not endlessly fixated on the Roman Empire, the Tudors, the Holocaust, the American Civil Rights Movement. No, because... no, those feel very t- uh, tick boxing. And when I was at A-level, when I did my A-levels, I chose the most obscure uh, classes possible. Um, I ended up studying the War of the Roses and the French Revolution. And uh, and I think... The French Revolution is really undertaught, isn't it? It is greatly undertaught, but a lot of European history is. I, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure kids learn very much about Bismarck uh, or Westphalia or Russia. People should be learning about Russia right now. Because that's part of the problem is uh, that people don't uh, understand where someone else is coming from. Uh, 
Uh, you have to, that's one of the things I love about history. I'm a, I'm a genuine liberal, not in the big L sense, uh, but in the personality sense, in that I'm attracted to difference and I want to understand where someone else is coming from. So in the case of Russia, if you have a generation of kids who just see everything through a grim Anglo-Saxon uh, lens of it's all about freedom versus tyranny, or it's all about left versus right, if they don't appreciate that there are some people out there in the rest of the world who believe in God, or who are operating by some extraordinary thousand-year-old script about Prince Volodymyr and his conversion to the Russian Orthodox Church, then you, you would end up misinterpreting the present. And that's what we do with people like Putin. We misinterpret his actions. We just think, oh, he must be Hitler. He must be or a mad. Nazi. Or, or he's mad. a communist. And, or he's mad. No, he's operating by a script that we haven't bothered to study. But if we did, not only would we better understand, but we'd also find it's fascinating. And that was so true from... From 9-11 on, well, it's always been oh, true, definitely. but you know, 9-11, the events post 9-11 absolutely bear that out. Oh, I, yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, to come back to multiculturalism, I'm, I'm a real multiculturalist. We need to study theology okay. in order to understand where these people are coming from. I don't just want kids to learn about uh, the Bible and memorize their Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I want them to understand the Quran as well, because you need to. And when you do, you'll discover that it's, it, it's magnificent. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult read, but uh, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth sticking with. Um, I travelled through, uh, I in the early 90s, travelled through Iran in places like Isfahan, which is a great mm. uh, Shia city, and, and travelled around mosques there in wonder at the, the amazing calligraphy all around, and, and opened to the idea that, that, that Islam had a lot to teach us. And then 9-11 happened, but I didn't lose that facility, I hope, to, to look objectively at Islam as a yeah. belief structure. And yeah. I worry, and I wonder if you share my view, that the word Islamophobia isn't helpful in that sense, in the sense that actually it prescribes debate. It, oh, definitely. It, it cuts yeah. it off because it, yeah. we should be allowed to, to deconstruct Islam. And of that's, course. Uh, but equally, that's not the same thing as anti-Muslim bigotry, which is lamentable and reprehensible. Yeah. If we were talking about genuine Islamophobia, then I would be dead against it. Um, I'm, I'm I, I'm wary of all hate crime laws. I'm wary of any attempt to police thought, uh, partly because I just think morally you can't. Um, you, you, whether or not you should or you shouldn't, I don't think you can change the way people think. And if you attempt to, you're more likely actually just to repress those thoughts, thoughts and feelings, and they'll erupt in a more ugly form elsewhere. So if it's genuine, just lazy bigotry, uninformed, that, that would be preposterous. Um, but if it is a, a genuine debate about what is it you believe and to critically analyze it and how does it fit with the modern world, well, this is something which people are very happy to do to Christianity. And I don't see why it shouldn't be on the table for all faiths. What did you take away from... Um, the book Dominion we mentioned a, a few minutes, Tom Holland's book. Mm. I, mean, I, I, I totally agree with you, by the way, books that ought to be read by people that haven't been picked up enough. And, and this idea that, that, well, let me tell you what I thought was a, the, the principal idea that came through. It, just people assume the advantages that Chris, Christendom has endowed and forget what the world would be like without it. Yeah. Is, 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 that was the basic message, wasn't it? The, absolutely, it? yes. I, yeah, I interviewed Rowan Williams recently, and uh, it was a fantastic interview, because one of these people who, when you first speak to him, uh, you think you're getting nothing out of him. Uh, but then you listen back to it, and it's, it's as if a Tolstoy novel is being read to you on the dictaphone. <laughs> you, you realize, actually, there's an incredible depth there. Uh, and he, he made this point that we forget where things have come from. We assume that things have always been thus. And in fact, this is a state of nature. And of course, this is actually almost a European heresy. This is almost a European belief that uh, it's the Rousseau idea that if you got rid of all those traditions, all those customs, if you, if you scraped away all the detritus of hundreds of years of bigotry and prejudice, you'd find this noble savage underneath uh, who 
who was in, instinctively enlightened, yeah. instinctively wouldn't be killing people, wouldn't be enslaving people, no, wouldn't absolutely be torturing not. people. So actually, the progress of our history in the official mythology has been a process of scraping away tradition, get rid of the religion, get rid of the pol- so that underneath you'll find this this perfect person. The complete opposite is true. Actually, that very enlightenment idea is itself an inheritance of Christianity, and you actually need to work back through the history to find out where ideas came from, like democracy, like humanity, like liberalism, like tolerance. And you realize that these are actually not natural at all. They are not what we would uh, either be like if we were in the caves or if we had grown up in a different country in a different part of the world, because that's not what they do there. They are things that have emerged from a cauldron of ideas over centuries of trial and error. Um, and, and we need to rediscover those things, their origin. And Dominion Tom's book uh, argues that Christianity really has shaped us, even when we don't think we're being Christian or think we're being anti-Christian. So, for instance, when we're being secular or when, we're, uh, or, or when you have communism or things like that, even things which seem like the very antithesis of Christianity, usually if you work back through them, you can find that they are either imitating, developing from, or reacting against a Christian idea. So they're still rooted in Christianity as an experience. Um, communism, the idea of equality. equality. Secularism, the idea that you shouldn't um, have faith imposed upon you, that uh, your relationship with God is only a true one if it is freely chosen. So many, so many of the characteristics of the modern society are actually Christian in origin. And you could even go stretch it quite far and say that in many ways, Britain in 2022 is more Christian than, me- than it was in the medieval era. When you think about we've got rid of the death penalty. Yeah. We have a welfare state that looks after the very poorest. Yeah. We go out of our way to let in people of different faiths, which is certainly something that in the 13th century wasn't done to Jews. Mm. So uh, w- in many ways, we've actually become a more Christian country uh, at the same time as we appear outwardly to have thrown off our Christian identity. As a, as a journalist and a broadcaster, I wish I had more confidence uh, when tackling the day's news events to sometimes view it through a Christian prism. Mm. Uh, yesterday, um, we were looking at the story of Will Smith, who's gone onto the stage oh, yes. of the Oscars and clouted yes. uh, Chris Rock, yes. he chose not to turn the other cheek. He, now, that's a difficult one. Uh, he did, but he did then cry and apologize. And I actually thought that the <laughs> apology was worse than the slap. Um, that, was, uh, that was a difficult one. I, I sort of, I, a part of me uh, thinks he had no choice. Uh, because a joke was told about his wife, who's unwell. It was tricky, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, he then laughed. He laughed at the joke and then realized his wife had seen him laugh. So if Will Smith had done nothing and he didn't have to slap the guy, but if he had he could not have reacted, out. he could have, he should have. The thing to do was to walk out. And yes. we shouldn't be afraid of saying, here's the thing you do. Faced yes. with all these complicated and conflicting circumstances, yes. as you've brilliantly laid out for us there. Actually, the thing to do was say, Jada, we're off. Yeah, you're quite right. Get our, get your coat. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you. That would have been the better reaction. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> uh, Hollywood is such a land of preposterous artifice. It's a land which wallows in sex and violence. And there's a, there's, there's a, scene, in, there's a scene in one of my favorite movies, If, uh, which is about the revolution in a public school. And the boys are, are playing at fencing. And one of them accidentally cuts the other one. And he holds up the blood on the cut. And he says, look, blood, real blood. And I almost feel like that about that Hollywood uh, ceremony. That are all these years of wallowing in, in, in fake violence, the sudden eruption of real violence, Ukraine the audience comes to Tinseltown. The audience, the audience was, they did not stupefied. know how to react. To the ex- know, yeah, to the extent that he, they applauded him when he came on to get his award. They were so shocked. They didn't know what to do. Um, he, he did the wrong thing. Uh, but it was, a, it was a moment of reality. It was a moment of reality. 
I absolutely agree. And interestingly, I was looking at some polls for the number of people who thought it wasn't real. Yeah, I mean, oh, we, yeah. You know, that's, it's that's astonishingly and depressingly high. Yes, yes. Um, and yet you could, looking at those pictures, you intuit this yes. is for real. And Chris Rock handled it very well. Uh, but look, if this had happened 100 years ago, uh, everyone would be on Will Smith's side, which shows how we've changed. And you might say it shows how we've changed. We've become more Christian. Or is it the influence of feminism? Or is it uh, the death of the concepts of gall gallantry and chivalry? I don't know what it is. But 100 years ago, first of all, 100 years ago, uh, would there have been Academy Awards? I think they might have started by then. Um, when did Academy Awards become roasts? When did award ceremonies become about taking the mick out of the people getting the awards? I hate that. I've never enjoyed this Ricky Gervais thing. You've got all these people who've worked for an But it was a response, Tim. It was the Ricky Gervais thing of, of, of pricking the bubble of pomposity was oh, yes. a response to the was overarching to the pomposity. pomposity but, if you, but, if, but if you, I'm sorry, if you watch Academy Awards from the 60s and 70s, they're, they're saying, lovely. They're but lovely. The, but, yeah, but they're not going to say, saying, you, you know, apart from Jane Fonda, saying, yeah. you know, we must do something about Vietnam. They, oh, true. they came up, yes. they placed, placed a director, yes. uh, as Ricky Gervais was saying. But they would also you know, have a lovely dance routine with Fred Astaire or something like that. <laughs> I just think culture was better. I'm not saying society was better, but high culture was much better, more imaginative, uh, uh, more, more genteel back then. And the irony is, is that if in 1968, I don't know, David Niven had told a joke about the hair of, of someone's wife in the front row, that guy would have gone up and knocked him out. Because, and and in, the world uh, would have said, good for him. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely so right. But the point is, David Niven wouldn't have cracked the But he wouldn't gag. have done it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because I, I, for some reason, it's become cool to be cruel. How, how, here's a loaded question. How puerile is Hollywood in terms of, I mean, if you think back to uh, if, you, if there is such a thing as an average 90s, 60s film, yeah. I, I, I have no proof for this, but I, I strongly suspect that if you look at the verbal IQ, if you, if you, if you transcribe the film's yes. script, yes. A, there will be many more words in it. Yes. It will be a much more literate form of a, a medium of expression. Yeah. And the verbal IQ within it would be much higher. Yes. And the ideas within it and the complicated realities of human interaction which be, would be much more faithful to reality, not a Marvel superhero film. But yeah, but, but those films would be scripted by Gore Vidal and they'd be directed by Billy Wilder. And then if you go back to the 1940s, they're being written by Dorothy Parker um, and Ayn Rand, of course, um, and Dashiell Hammett, so, in other words, there, there is a, a crossover between New York uh, and the theatre land and the literary world and Hollywood in a way that there isn't now. There are still some players like Mamet or Sorkin. There are still some interesting people making very intelligent movies. But I, I, that's the change that's happened. It's become far more bubblegum, whereas Hollywood's attitude used to be, find me anyone good and let them write. So that's one reason why those movies would be more literate. But also uh, back then, you know, they, they had reboots and they had repetition. There were a, a thousand variations of the greatest story ever told or Ben-Hur or cowboy movies, etc. Uh, but what they didn't tend to do was constantly go back over the archives and remake. Uh, and that's, that's what Hollywood has become now. It's just become a reboot factory. But I, I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years. <clears throat> I loved it. I loved the people. Yeah. Uh, they were sort of aristocratic. They came from nothing and from every different bit of the United States. And they were all drawn towards this one place. And they all lived in fantastic homes. And they, they cared as much about what they ate as who they voted for. And uh, they were not puerile. They were very kind and generous and well-educated. Yeah, I, I spent a few weeks covering the, the Michael Jackson trial, so right. rather less time. But, 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 but what they produce does not reflect uh, their intellect or their culture, which I, I actually find, found to be very high and, and impressive. 
Um, tell us a bit about your that 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 journey, that Hollywood word journey. Um, you were in Los Angeles for a couple of years. Yes. Um, yes yeah. How have you wound up where you are thinking what you think? Because you were a Labour supporter for for quite a while. I was. Yes. Yeah. But I, that, that changed from left to right. People, it's easy to tell a story which involves a Damascene moment. There really was none. Uh, it was a gradual change in my personality, but also in politics. Uh, the world of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown is it's actually quite a dramatic shift to that of Ed Miliband, which is when I left the Labour Party. Um, and there was a change in the culture. And as it probably does come down to culture war stuff, as the culture shifted, it was inevitable that I, as I was changing, because I became a Catholic, I just became generally more right wing. It was sort of inevitable that I would change my my allegiances. Um, but it hurt when I did it. Uh, and uh and to this day, uh, I just I, I, I just last night met uh, Keir Starmer and there is a part of me instinctively that thinks Labour people are good people. I think they're good people. I think they're on the right side, uh, probably of history. Uh, if there were a war and I had to pick a side, I'd probably call myself a progressive. I'd probably find myself standing. I'm more likely to stand in the civil war with the Republicans than I am with Franco. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, I do still feel that. But I think they're wrong. They're just wrong about everything. But they're very nice people. I can't dispute. But isn't, but isn't the flip side that uh, that you, as a conservative, are now seen as bad, not and wrong, bad and wrong? Whereas yeah. you, I, th- I think, conservatives find it much, you know, thoughtful conservatives find it much easier to look at their political adversaries on the other side of the cultural trenches and say, you're, you're, yeah. you're just wrong, guys. You're and bad. I, you're I, well-intentioned, well-meaning. Yeah. You're just wrong. And I know that those left-wing people probably hate me in a way that um, conservatives don't hate left-wingers. They, they, they do that. There are one or two who become bet noirs, people like Jeremy Corbyn, although I never felt that myself. But there are there, there are some left wingers who do end up becoming hated. But there is a uh, ironically religious zeal yeah. in the left's perception of the world that you don't find with the right. But this comes with utopianism, doesn't it? It comes with utopianism, but it also comes back to what I said earlier about I'm a genuine liberal liberalitas, the meaning generosity. Um, I, I and most conservatives actually are. They they are interested in other people and where they're it's coming also from. Also, being a Christian and a Catholic, that you you know, yeah. all, all men are your brothers. I feel that. You yes. know, like I can't hate somebody. I, mean, I, no, I want to hate no. some people, but I, don't, I find it really difficult because I, I, yeah. my, all men are my brothers. And there's a misunderstanding about original sin that people think that Catholics believe people are born bad. It's not true. We believe people are born to be good. It's just that they are prey to temptation. Um, and so therefore you see error in people. That doesn't mean you see someone as being bad. Uh, I'm, I'm, required, uh, I, I'm required to love rapists, right? Yeah. Therefore, I'm, so I'm going to be generous to leaders of the Labour Party. <laughs> I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different way. It's a, it's a discipline. It's not necessarily an instinct. It's a disciplined way of trying to see humanity. And of course, that's got to extend to your political opponents. If I can make this, this link between mm-hmm. Tom Holland, the author, and Tom Holland, the Hollander, the right. actor. Oh yes, the, who was who played the part of the vicar in a fantastic. There we go. I don't hate the BBC. The BBC Rev, comment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's one scene where, and it's uncomfortable viewing, where a paedophile turns up in church. I don't know if you saw this one. I mean, it's a, yeah. the two series are extraordinary with the most amazing denouements to each one, and very rich in sort of Christian. It, it's very. Uh, it, 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 it's a it's a parable that you know, the whole series is a each series is a parable. Yes. But there's this one particular episode where a, a, a paedophile turns up and and Tom Hollander uh, Rev uh, is struggling. You know, obviously struggling. He, he's a Church of England vicar. He's he's got a child himself, I think. And uh, and here's his paedophile. 
Yeah. But he is enjoined by his faith to to try and understand yes. that he's a, another sinner. Yes. Uh, the post-Christian world doesn't make those fine distinctions, does no, it? That's one very worrying aspect of the modern world. Uh, is the w- w- was it Cardinal George who said everything is permissible, but nothing is forgiven. Uh, so we are invited to do everything. Uh, all, there's the sense of limits, of restrictions, of taboo is gone. But if you cross an invisible line that no one's quite sure where it it lies anymore. If you cross that invisible line, there's no coming back, uh, which is what cancel culture really is. I mean, there's a sort of a fantasy fraud cancel culture. You can't say anything anymore. Now, you can. You can say things. It's just that if you do say the wrong thing, you may well be destroyed. And working in journalism, I live in that terror all the time. And every sentence I speak, I think back over it and think, Did I, am I going to be well, we've just We've just done it. We've just done it. We've both, <laughs> here are two Catholic boys talking about uh, forgiving paedophiles. We've just done it. I mean, well, quite you know, possibly, yes. going, How dare they? How yes. dare they, yes. given the history of the church that they, they subscribe to? Well, we can probably get away with that because I think much of this unforgivingness uh, is contextual. So, for instance, if we had, if we had said that about Putin, we might find that we are cancelled. So if we so so I I note I note during during the coronavirus who are the bad people are the people who don't wear the masks or the infected the lepers of the modern world those are the bad people anything to do with them if you're nice to them or you are one yourself you're cancelled now it's Russians which which makes me so angry because again it's, it's utterly illiberal the uh, the idea that we're at war with the entire Russian civilization that every Russian person who is in London is suspect anyone who ever made money and left the, it, it, it's so unchristian. But also those kids, those Russian kids who are on the wrong side, totally pro-Ukraine and hail Ukraine, I hope it wins. But those Russian kids, uh, apart from those that commit war crimes, mm. obviously, mm. most of them are conscripted. They don't yeah. want to be there. They're young. They they're bleed. frightened. They bleed they, too. And they are being forced to do something they probably don't want to do. Um, and, and I can't stand the cheering on of, oh, a helicopter's been destroyed. A tank's been blown up. Well, there was someone in it. And, and I want the Ukrainians to win. When did this happen? To him? When did this happen? When did, when did, the, when did the, the the left move from being the pacifist party to the warmongering party? Um, Post Iraq War. I mean, it seems like something's happened there. Yeah, possibly. I don't. I don't, I don't know if it is a left-right thing, but it, it wouldn't shock me because, of course, the the left, uh, although there are large parts of it that are pacifistic and I and humanist, and I greatly respect that, but. Significant bits of the left have always believed that violence is, resent- is redemptive and an essential part of history. That we're Revolutionary. In a, we're in a class struggle. And uh, it, it is, uh, it's Hegelian. It, one side wins the other. Well, no, it's the antithesis of, <laughs> because he believes that eventually you can, dry, you can derive a new consensus. But Marx pushes that a bit further and says, actually, you can't. Uh, it's the workers versus the owners, and someone has to win. And, and because the owners won't give up, the workers have to use violence. Um, so that's that's always been an essential part of a lot of left wing thinking. I'm just reminded as you as you take us back to COVID, and we can go back to to Brexit as well. And there was a, the, Alistair Cook, BBC letter, who wrote the, the famous BBC letter from America mm. on radio. And there was one particular episode where he was talking about the power of coincidence and how an, an old friend of his his would say, uh, you know, coincidence was there to remind him that somebody had you in mind. Mm. And and there is there is an idea, isn't there, that sometimes coincidences are there as as a sign, and 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 I I I don't say the way things have gone in recent years is signposts anything. I simply say it is an extraordinary coincidence that we've we've gone from the the culture war deepening Brexit wars to the even because of the in particular because of the face mask, which you know literally you couldn't hide which side of the divide you're on if in certain circumstances with the face mask, uh, and then that almost on the day COVID seems to stop. Ukraine begins, and we've just moved from one uh, one one 
a news phenomenon, mm. one new cycle into a next one, and the, 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 almost almost without pausing for breath. Yes, and and they do inf- they do require people to take a position. They do, and I, I think I do think it's a con- coincidence. Um, but although dude, it may not be, because Putin may well have judged timing on the basis of if he thought the West was was weak. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel that during COVID, society was mobilised. Um, we were put on a war footing. Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying there's any conspiracy behind that. What I'm saying is that that is very easy to transfer that to a literal war. And there's a feeling almost that people were jacked up by the experience of COVID, the paranoia, um, the tension, uh, the constant rolling news, the numbers, the death. People were jacked up. And that's easily transferred to Ukraine. Uh, So uh, I I think that's what's going on here, that that people have just moved from one crisis to another. And and it complements both. The psychology of complements both. Um, I know I'm really conscious you've got to go. And we, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I want to say thank you so much for opening up and, and, and providing us with such a coherent view uh, of your thinking. Tim Stanley, thank you.